You are listening to the Visualizing War podcast. In each episode, we talk about representations of war in art, text, film, and music. With new guests each time, we look at how people have described or imagined war in different periods and places. And we discuss the impact which war stories have on us as individuals and societies. Hello, my name is Nicholas Vieta. And my name is Alice Koenig. And we co-direct the Visualizing War project at the University of St. Andrews. Our guest today is photojournalist Hugh Kinsella Cunningham. Hugh has been based in the Democratic Republic of Congo for a number of years, documenting a range of humanitarian crises from the impacts of Ebola to the mass displacements that have occurred as a result of the Ituri conflict in the northeast of the DRC. You can see some of Hugh's incredible photography on his Instagram page and also on his website. And he's been kind enough to share a couple of images for a blog on the Visualizing War Project website too. His series Invisible Wounds used stained darkroom handprints to explore the unseen transmission, traumas and mental health effects of the Ebola virus on communities that were already ravaged by conflict in North Kivu. He's also teamed up with charity Save the Children to create a series of portraits telling the stories of individual children who've been impacted in different ways by the Ituri conflict, a crisis that's largely forgotten by the wider world. As Hugh explains in the captions to some of his photos, there are well over 100 different armed groups in the east of Congo, and Ituri province has seen over 1.6 million people displaced by fighting, with crimes against humanity being documented by the UN. And one thing that he's trying to convey in his photography is the scale of the suffering. As he puts it, over 60 displacement camps dot the land, an entire community on the move, persecuted and frail, stranded in these isolated safe havens. There's no end to the crisis in sight. Hugh has had his photography featured by the BBC, The Guardian, The New York Times and The Washington Post, among other news outlets. And the power of his work is increasingly being recognized, not just by organizations like the UN and the Pulitzer Center for Crisis Reporting, but also by major international photography awards. Hugh, we know you're about to go on assignment again tomorrow, so we are very grateful to you for fitting us in before you travel. Hello, and welcome to the Visualizing War podcast. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I'm blushing. <laughs> <laughs> Hugh, we have lots of questions uh, for you about your photography and the way in which they sort of interact with wider habits of uh, visualizing conflict. But uh, just to start us off for now, could you give us and our listeners a quick overview of the various crises in the DRC that you've spent the last few years trying to document? Uh, so right now, I'd say there's kind of three main fields of conflict right now. You have the Aturi conflict in the Northeast, uh, which is has quite a lot of the hallmarks of ethnic cleansing. This is where the UN has documented like uh, the, the crimes as meeting the definition of crimes against humanity. So I spent uh, a few months last year covering that. There's also in North Kivu province in an area called Beni, which I've spent a lot of time in. So Beni was the epicenter of the Ebola outbreak that lasted for a few years. It's also the site of an insurgency by a group called the ADF, the Allied Democratic Forces, who formerly Ugandan rebels that have been based in the east of Congo, uh, sort of taking advantage of the insecurity there to create like a safe haven. And they're ostensibly jihadists. They've pledged allegiance to the Islamic Caliph. And there's this debate and whispers about like what extent they might actually be receiving support from Islamic State sort of command and control. Um, and that's a conflict I've kind of been starting to cover more and more. I just spent a week with the Congolese army there last month. And then just as a third overall thing there's lots of low level simmering conflicts with you know local militias armed groups remnants and uh, stragglers from 
wars gone by, like, you know, uh, the FDLR, who were recently in the news for potentially assassinating the Italian ambassador uh, just an hour up the road. Um, and these, I, I kind of, I, I'm not an expert in these. There are UN experts that have dedicated their lives to tracking these armed groups and their, you know, their ambitions, their their desires and their relations with the local army. So I, as someone who is aware of the lack of his own knowledge on that, I just see that as a broad thing to be explored. Uh, but yeah, there's the Aturi conflict, uh, the insurgency in Beni, and then various other militia wars going on. So a hugely complex situation in which uh, you have political conflicts, uh, religiously motivated conflicts, an overlap of the two, plus the impact of Ebola that adds to the uh, precariousness of the situation. Yeah. And it also, I mean, it's it's a sort of a cliche and sort of time-worn point, but it actually is worth mentioning. Ituri province is absolutely uh, rich in gold resources and stuff. So when you look, just if you zoom out and look on a map on the border of Congo, Uganda, South Sudan, these areas that are just very resource rich, but have been made completely lawless, you can sort of take a step back and you can see that this lawlessness does benefit people that are smuggling those materials illegally exploiting them, working in national park conservation areas. So the conflicts here are, you know, incredibly complex and incredibly hard to actually see and represent. Just stepping back from the specifics of that conflict in the Congo for a minute, can we talk about your journey to the Congo and your journey into conflict photography? Which came first? Did you end up in the Congo and start documenting conflict or were you drawn to conflict photography right from the start? first exhibition I ever remember really seeing as like a teenager and being super impressed why was in Photofusion Brixton they had a, like a retrospective of Tim Heverington's work and they had all these gigantic prints blown up on the wall on the wall and it was like these images of uh, you know the soldiers in Afghanistan just like playing around with each other just hanging around there was I think there was very few images of like the actual fighting in that and that stayed with me for a while but no I didn't for a long time I didn't feel ready to actually cover conflicts in terms of how to present it and actually being like physically and uh, training wise actually prepared. So the first time I went to Congo, I, <laughs> I was working as like a call center receptionist and I saved up uh, to come to go to Kinshasa on the other side of the country to do a story about um, Muhammad Ali because he came there for the rumble in the jungle. So I uh, contacted some journalists, got you know a rough sense of my way around, got a sneaky tourist visa um, and went and Uh, did a story for the BBC about like the path that Muhammad Ali took, all the young boxers at the training gyms with his name on, uh, the old decaying stadium. And from there, things kind of, sp I started, you know, doing more and more social stories. And I, you know, found myself really content with that. But at the back of my mind, there was always this idea that I wanted to be able to represent the scenarios that impact the most people, where millions of people are at risk from these hugely important, significant events that I felt No one was really covering or covering properly. And then I only, I only would say I started covering conflict about two years ago. I got selected to do like, like a HEFAT training, uh, like combat and crisis medical training, which is actually quite hard for freelancers to get. Or like my flatmates and colleagues or humanitarians, their work is happy to spend thousands of dollars training them up, you know, to learn first aid, to be ready to operate in these areas. But for me, it was complicated. So I didn't really want to put myself in that situation until I had that. And then I covered the Ebola crisis in 2019, which became very significant in terms of the work that I was publishing and in terms of how I was like viewing photography. And, and that was the first time I felt like I was really making an impact. Like I was filing for news agencies 
day in, day out. And I was seeing my pictures of the like Ebola crisis up on, you know, Guardian, Washington Post, New York Times. And I was realized this is how people are perceiving things. And one of the things that made me happiest then was I took a picture of a lady called Rachel Wukwati. I can send you the image. She's being suited up in the yellow PPE of the Ebola. And she's staring right at the camera. And I love that picture so much. It's like a, it's a quite sensitive picture. And she, and she went everywhere. That picture was on uh, like Washington Post, LA Times and The Guardian. Just this one, you know, she's, she's, she's very young. She's a very young health worker. And that made me exceptionally happy that people would open The Guardian and see a picture of her as the face of the Ebola crisis. And I've been back to see her twice again. I took her portrait for another story uh, just last November about the long-term trauma of uh, covering, you know, viral responses on health workers. So yeah, that was kind of my journey in. And alongside the Ebola uh, outbreak, there was also a conflict which is happening in the same region. And that's how I started moving into covering conflict. I guess now I have two interrelated questions for you. One is, what kind of impact do you hope for your photos to have on the viewer? And related to that, can you tell us also a bit about what kind of style you employ in your photography to convey the points you want to make with your photos? To also, if there were some specific influences um, uh, for you on your, on your photography, on the style of your photography. So you mentioned Tim Hetherington, but I'd imagine there's probably also more people yeah. whose work has influenced your photography. What I'm mostly thinking a lot about now is just how to actually make people stop and consider an image. Because in term, in, again, back to very practical sort of earthly concerns, it's very, very hard to sort of place work from Congo to get articles, to get people to actually engage, to get people to realize there are these conflicts happening, to get people to realize there are these epidemics, viruses, you know, social issues happening. So the last few projects that I've done that have been sort of more like personal to me, like this work for Save the Children and my Ebola coverage has been about thinking of like a visual hook. So people will be like, what is happening here that will like make them engage with the story and read it? So I did a, a conflict story a few, uh, a few months ago about the military side of the Aturi conflict. And I did the whole thing with night vision goggles. So people would stop and think, where on earth is this? What, where is this happening? The Save the Children work, I couldn't bear to see any more pictures of like displaced children looking like vulnerable little victims in these dark tents in these horrible refugee camps I wanted to just make images that were just full of color and love so people would see like this psychedelic sort of set of colors and just stop and think who are these kids what's happening here that's kind of where I'm coming from at the moment uh style so I have you know numerous styles that I've employed I I really, I mean, in terms, I mean, Tim Heverington is also, it's a fantastic reference, but in terms of like practical people whose work I absolutely love, I'm, I love people like Ben Lowy and Michael Christopher Brown, the first people to use iPhones for conflict reporting, these weird, like colorful, you know, hallucinogenic images of war. Glenna Gordon, but she's, um, she's the photographer that did like the coverage of Boko Haram for like the New York Times magazine, people working on conflicts in new and interesting ways. And in terms of Congo, um, one of the first photographers whose work I really got into, I will never be able to afford one of his prints, but a guy called um, Kirapi Katempo. And in Kinshasa, he had this series called On Regard, which is basically Kinshasa photographed solely through the reflections of puddles in the streets. And it just has, as a project, it just has everything. You know, it has this link that people in Kinshasa hate having their pictures taken. It has this link that the whole city is in these like broken roads and then the community going past. It's just one of the most fantastic projects. But yeah, I, I, I flip from style to style depending on what 
the story is this is um, I have again at the I've never sort of approached making like a longer book project or or something like this yet because I've never been able to focus so entirely even for my Ebola coverage I was going out with like my digital camera for like work and filing every day but then I also had my big lumpy um, film camera taking these like six by seven seven negatives to make my like personal hand printed project afterwards there's just it it depends what's happening. So it sounds like style really is something very dynamic that's uh, based in part on um, on previous influences, but also to a large part on what's happening at the moment, um, what you need, what's coming out of the situation. But also I imagine how you can make an impact by diverging from, let's say, more mainstream um, ways of representing the same conflicts and topics. You were, you, were, you were talking about the camps and the displacement and the focus on the children as victims. That's the kind of um, photo visualization that you'd expect, I guess, in news coverage, because they think this kind of appeals to the audience in, in some way. I've seen the limitations of every article you'll read about, like the Uturi conflict says it's a neglected conflict, says people don't pay attention. And on, the images have a huge part of this. You know, it's not enough for some photographer working for Reuters to go and just take a horrific picture of a child of an injury. People switch off from this. Mm. People don't like looking at awful images of horror, you know, and the, the, the counterpart to that would be someone saying, well, we have to show things as they are. And I don't necessarily agree with that. I think you have to be a lot more sensitive and a lot more careful. Like if you see pictures of injured children or whatever, and this doesn't instantly put something on someone's lips, this doesn't instantly sort of engage people. And I think you've also talked a little bit in the past about your concern about what that kind of photography, sort of parading a girl with a machete wound to her face repeatedly for the news outlets, what that does to the community, what that does to that family. So in terms of uh, sensitivity towards the people you're photographing, as well as how you're engaging a wider audience. Again, I, I'm very grateful I've got to work with people like Save the Children in the UNHCR here because these are people that are very sensitive. They know how the communities work and they know how best to approach these things. But yes, there's a it's a horrendous thing to do to re-traumatize people, photographing victims, to go and keep doing this, go to the same scenes. Um, at the community stigma as well as a huge, with the Ebola crisis, quite a lot of my friends were working on that from the health side of things. But stigma communities you know not accepting people who are seen as different such as an ebola survivor if they come back to our our, our town after having uh, been released from the treatment center are they still infectious you know what were they doing in there uh, so community stigma is a huge theme here and the idea that that in conflict photography could have an impact by you know re-victimizing people by having people who have the most horrific stories in camps being seen as you know somehow different or you know that's something to bear in mind as well we obviously live in an increasingly digital world. Um, the nature of conflict is changing. So the kind of access that journalists can get, photojournalists like you, is changing. Can you talk us through a little bit about how conflict photography has changed, partly in terms of what people want uh, captured on film or on, on camera, and, and partly in terms of access issues? I'd say, you know, in our in our real world, there's actually, it's, in, it's completely in decline. People are unwilling or unable to pay for conflict photography. People, uh, there's issues with responsibility, safety. News outlets barely take responsibility for photographers anymore. Uh, no one wants to. No one wants to encourage behaviour that they're not going to pay for. I have a very talented friend called Anna Maria Aravalo, 
she works on uh, women's issues in Latin America. So she had a, a very well-received project about women's prisons in Venezuela. She had access, you know, these beautiful pictures of women living together in these prisons. She wanted to uh, do a follow-up project in El Salvador. And it took just a huge amount of time for her to actually get funding for that because not even though her work was proven to be of this amazing standard, she had this access no one else can get. She has a very unique style. No one was willing to take responsibility for her to create this work about women living in a crisis zone. And it's the same here. When it was the Ebola crisis, certain outlets would not send journalists to the outbreak zone, especially American outlets, because there's, you know, State Department safety regulations and stuff about citizens, uh, things of that nature. But just generally, as we talked about before, access is incredibly hard. There is also a real lack of conflict photography coming out of Africa because governments, militaries are incredibly aware of what these images can now mean in the future, what these images could represent, what they might give away. So... Again, another reason why conflict photography is, you know, generally in decline is because people cannot see the conflicts. You can't create these kind of, you know, Larry Burroughs-esque images of, you know, like battles, combat, you know, medevacs and stuff. This is this is incredibly hard to access here. Um, I had a week with the Congolese army a month ago, and it took me over a year to get this access. There's an ongoing offensive against the Islamist rebels. I couldn't get access to the actual beginning of the offensive. And that's because, you know, there was worries about what you could see you know the actual seeing the actual capacity of a state military seeing what you know they might be doing wrong people are very switched on and they won't allow this so i was allowed access just a month ago to see the aftermath of this offensive and the patrolling in these you know zones and occasionally you can slip through but this is complete luck you know i was with i was with some patrols on like front lines and stuff and you know we came back from these positions an hour later they were ambushed and they took casualties so we came back with the bodies to the main military hospital, but things like that, you know, incredibly rare. I've only seen one active displacement and an attack here, and it was completely random. I was driving with my uh, local colleague from one town to another to do a story about the rainforest. And we ended up driving through a community on the move, uh, being displaced by some uh, rebels nearby. And there were seven dead. And to actually, the reality of the conflicts here is the hardest thing. That's very interesting. So all these challenges, budgeting, but also this access, because people are increasingly digitally aware, worried perhaps that the images you take, you know, might even end up in, you know, in, in a court when people are being tried for crimes against humanity at some point in the future. And all of that is working towards making these conflicts more invisible. But it sounds like you you and, and some of the colleagues you've been talking about are really passionate about making them visible and making them visible in these impactful ways that draw people in and make sure that this conflict isn't forgotten and isn't ignored by the rest of the world. Could I just ask a, a follow-up question on this? Um, because I'm really quite interested um, in, in the ways in which sort of the material conditions of producing conflict photography, producing text in a larger sense, have a very strong impact on what kind of text we produce. Because I suppose there's this sort of almost romantic image of the conflict photographer that comes out of films, I guess, you know, of you guys having access to everything all the time and uh, you're always in, in the middle of where things are happening for me it's surprising to find out that it's often a much more indirect route that you have to take but if, sort of following up on that if you wanted to sell your images to a news outlet a news organization what are they expecting this kind of action-based image or are they happy to go with the more 
indirect and maybe also in, in some ways more impactful type of image that you're able to produce how does the how does the kind of tension between what you have access to what you want to do but also what's requested on the part mm. of people who might buy your work how does that play out well by by and large editors are also pretty much aware of the limitations for like if we look at images of like the conflict in ethiopia right now it's a step, you know, it's a war with like, you know, Ethiopia is an incredibly powerful military that is, you know, uh, absolutely laying waste to a whole region, displacing civilians. In terms of conflict images, there are no images of fighting from that. The conflict has only been recorded through displacements, refugees, maybe, you know, some burnt out villages and tanks. There are no fighting images from that, from an entire war there. And I think it's the same here. And editors are aware of this. Again, the the demand for conflict photography isn't there for people to be like, we need you to get these images of mm -hmm. this. You know, we need you to get this image of a guy shooting right. That that doesn't really happen anymore. Yeah. Do, do you know why that is? On the one hand, we see that obviously there is a huge interest in seeing fictional depictions of battle, also quite graphic ones. So if you think of mm. um, uh, computer games or um, movies, which if you compare war movies made in the in the 60s to war movies made today, then obviously the fighting, it's a lot more graphic it's and it's, it's a lot more visceral. But at the same time, it seems that in terms of real conflicts that are going on, that doesn't create an interest in real life fighting or i'm just wondering whether you know i would say no i believe i mean this is i mean interesting i also love the language around photo articles about what photographers are saying they're doing there's a lot there's a very there's a key repetition of a phrase coming up and saying which is like we're going to be looking at this subject with this civilian social lens rather than through the lens of conflict through which things are often seen and actually honestly i i take issue with that i think that you know 90 percent of the stories coming out of middle east north africa conflict zones are seen through social lenses people there is a much wider appetite for stories for feel-good stories about a certain community as opposed to uh fighting images and i believe that's mm -hmm. demand that's budgets and that's access you know for instance you know i mean in i mentioned larry burrows are it's vietnam war photographer who's just this absolute benchmark and also a cliche at this point you know these images that have been reproduced hundreds of times but those acts those images in like the vietnamese highlands there's bits of congo that remind me of that visually it was my it was my reference you know halfway along the front line between on the Mbao Kamango road there's this former un position where these uh, jihadist militants overran the un they killed 14 peacekeepers and they injured 50 of them um, and that was like the second worst loss of life for the un since somalia um, and that base has now been abandoned. There's a few Congolese army troops occupying it, but there are these like ripped up, destroyed tents, overgrown like uh, barricades on the walls. As someone that again has grown up sort of Im imbibing these kind of media, you do think, well, this looks like the Vietnam War. Um, but the crucial difference is I would not be allowed to stay there for a week. I would not be allowed to have full access to see the daily routines that I can have five days you know, going there and staying there another two days elsewhere, but I will never be allowed to stay with one unit to get those kind of images here. So there's an interesting combination of practicality, logistics, um, but also this appetite, what audiences and news outlets want. And uh, it's just really interesting to hear you talk about these sort of these changing habits of representing um, and imagining conflict around the world. And I think until you started pulling this out, I, I think I, in a way I hadn't really noticed. 
some of the shifts that have gone on in my lifetime from much more sort of battle focused imagery mm. to, as you say, more of the civilian lens. And I'm as you as you're talking, I'm aware that most of the images that I've been confronted with over the last couple of years of the conflict in the Yemen, for example, have not come actually from news outlets, but they've come from NGOs, from charities that are trying to raise raise money. You know, so UNICEF is is sending me images and so on, and very much about the civilian, the social impact. So that leads me on to a question about your work with Save the Children. It would just be really interesting to know a little bit about what your experience of working with NGOs has been, aid organisations like Save the Children, what kind of brief do they give you and what kinds of images of conflict are they hoping you're going to capture? Well, there's straight off the bat, there's two ways that you will work. One is if straight down the middle, if someone has been funded by a donor for a certain programme that has a certain effect, they will need pictures of that. So that is... uh, you know, taking pictures of very practical things. In terms of creativity and media briefs, uh, there's often a, a good sense of like, let's let's see what, what it's like when we get there. And I've been very lucky to work with a few people that have let me pursue interesting ideas. And again, as, as we've sort of touched on, part of this like uh, incentive to create interesting ideas is a lack of access. And that comes from when you're with a humanitarian organization, they can't drive you know their safety protocols they're not allowed to go where there may be active fighting where there may be you know like aggressive rebel checkpoints so it's the idea of how to represent victims how to represent conflict uh in the most engaging possible way does come out of that necessity i think it's really interesting that 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 a lot of your creativity has come out of necessity. And you've talked a little bit about the portraits that you've taken for Save the Children of children in the displacement camps in Ituri province. And they really are strikingly beautiful. Obviously they document individual stories which are very distressing. Uh, These children have witnessed killings, they've lost family members, they've been forced from their homes and so on. But you, as you said, you haven't produced distressing images. You've used objects like flowers placed in front of the lens to flood your images of light and colour. I wonder if you could perhaps just talk us through a couple of your favourite images from that series and explain a bit more about what you were trying to communicate as well as how you went about creating those photos. Yeah, well, it's, yeah, it's very, I'm quite proud of the fact there's not any Photoshop at all in those images. It's just random stuff, like a magpie, like I pick up colourful things, you know, looking for what catches my eye. So it's, it's stuff actually physically held in front of a camera lens, kind of like coming in. And if you use flowers, small little objects, you know, like leaves, whatever, just on the side of cameras, it creates the floods of colour coming in. Um, I think one of my favourite, not favourite, but like most interesting one is just where I think I've really succeeded, which is a portrait of a, a boy, his face is like flooded with orange, but his interview as well. It's the kind of interview that you never see from conflict zones. His interview isn't one of the ones where it's, he's talking about having seen bodies floating down a river or something absolutely unimaginable for people who come from our context. Uh, he just talks about how they were displaced and they had no idea where his mum was because his mum had had to flee. And, you know, it was, you know, BBC Africa, when they featured these images, you know, they featured these images in, in on their Swahili language channels and their French language channels as well. That presented is just completely universal. So that I feel is just a real success. And that also comes down to working with really good communications people. Like all the interviews were gathered by my friend Jules. And it was, you know, it was a real challenge because neither of us speak Lendu. Uh, he speaks Swahili. I don't speak Swahili very well. That was just the moment where I thought we really succeeded. 
I guess that leads me on to my next question about your relationship with the people that you photograph. So there's a lot of communication going on. It's not just going there, uh, taking a picture. Obviously, you you need to talk to people. Um, I suppose you need to get their consent. Um, how does this work in, in practical terms? Are people generally happy to be photographed? Do they want to contribute to telling their story? Um, so how do the practicalities of, of, of producing the well, photos that you do play out? Well, practically working in Congo, any place I visit or any group I'm with, it's just culturally unacceptable to just start taking images. Mm. Now, whether or not that would be an issue for some sort of photographers or whatever, it's by the by, because here that's how you have to work. You have to go and introduce yourself to the, the head of town, village, the unit you're with, the, you know, the, the head of the NGO program. It's just how the culture works here. And actually I quite like it because it's, it's a way of what I can do is I can sit down, I can show images on my phone. You know, this is who I am. This is what I do. This is what we are here to do. And that's a fantastic way of working. I actually find it's quite comforting because I'm quite a socially anxious person. And I, I would feel very uncomfortable just zipping around, you know, uh, doing this. So that is interesting. In terms of consent, a good way of looking at this is, is covering Ebola with funerals to get images of people who have lost a loved one to, to Ebola. Uh, because it's a very key part of the story because funerals are where a huge percentage of Ebola infections happen because a corpse is incredibly infectious with this virus to touch. And of course, it's a global thing as part of a mourning, right? We are close to one another. We're close to a family. So those can be super spreader events, you know, before everyone started saying that every five minutes. Um, so to photograph a funeral, I would be with my uh, local colleague, Mustafa. We would go to the morgue we would see who had died that day and we would go and speak to the head of the family. Um, first, he would speak alone and I would come and introduce myself. And then instead of messing around with a four by four, I would just be on a motorbike on the back of a motorbike with the family as they went behind the hearse to go and photograph. So I was part, you know, at least for that moment, just part of the community, you know, um, focusing on the, the occasion, not so much taking pictures of people mourning and crying, uh, but that's a good example. It's, uh, you know, acceptance first, photos later. Um, in terms of very practical issue, when you're working with humanitarian organizations like uh, uh, UNHCR or Save the Children, there are consent forms. There are forms with pictures uh, on the back that demonstrate exactly how these pictures will be used, which I think is good. And of course you get to, I mean, I love being freelance because when it works, it works. Um, I get to work with amazing communications people from you know all different organizations from all different backgrounds in last year i worked with this amazing uh, cameroonian communications person called clarice working for the unhcr and we were gathering portraits of like uh expectant mothers who are refugees in the central african republic and she was great to work with my friend jules here who we did these aturi portraits with um it's fantastic to work with people who are very engaging very friendly and who can explain to people properly about what these images are used for because yeah again as it might as i hope it's clear i'm not the kind of person to, that would enjoy power dynamics of exploitation i think that's a very important point and that's come up also in some of the other podcast interviews with artists that we've had uh, conversations we've had also with academics the issue the ethical issues of of writing talking about war and conflict the fine line between documenting representing visualizing uh, and a form of exploitation so i think it's it's really interesting and important what you're saying here about your work do, do people tend to forget you're there as a as a photographer 
and uh, so that you get authentic access to to what's going on or uh, there's some authenticity issues in the same in the sense that people know you're there and then they adapt their behavior to you to what you might be expecting I'm just asking because that's a discussion that's often sort of in sociology and ethnology mm. that's a big discussion right because you you're there and your presence might change something. So I was quite interested in hearing more about that. Yeah, that is very interesting. Um, I like uh, to think I can blend into the background fairly easily. I mean, as a you know slightly underweight 27-year-old white guy bumbling around the east of Congo, that's not a realistic expectation all the time. Uh, but I have, you know, just in terms of how I engage people, uh, I have my ways around this. And honestly, after about five, 10 minutes of me ever being present at a scene, people tend to forget I'm there. I just spent a week uh, doing a story about fishing on Lake Kivu, which is like a volcanic lake with, you know, huge climate change issues. Um, when I, you know, I got my, I'd hired a canoe for the week. So I got that canoe to drop me off on a fishing boat. I, you know, I introduced myself to people, you know, um, I don't smoke, but I always have cigarettes with me, you know, I'm a, um, a font of cigarettes and you know after about five ten minutes of me you know asking questions you know what are you doing with this what's happening here you know just being very interested and being very engaged with what's going on people just forget I'm there it's mm -hmm. you know I'm free usually to take the images I want to take which are these moments like natural moments and of course I mean of conflict photography you can find that you might end up on a formal visit to some positions where you will have like a, an officer with you who is you know, who's phoned ahead in advance to make sure everyone's wearing their uniforms, make sure everyone's ammunition. It's actually kind of like not dangling off, you know, but again, usually uh, it's, you know, time on the ground that gets through that as well. I mean, it's not just, this isn't, this is, that's not mean, meaning to be sort of targeted at the national army. That's the, the United Nations are incredibly guilty of, of fixing scenes of trying to make you see things a certain way. You know, for instance, in Benny, with the, you know, insurgency there, if you ask for UN access, they will, you know, they will only drive you like 10 minutes around the town with their APCs. You know, you're not, you know, it's, if, you're, if you get to see anything more than that, you, it's just blind luck. I've put in access requests to see their drones, to see what actually they can see. And I've been denied that, uh, which I also think is quite interesting because, you know, these guys, the UN has surveillance drones and i've seen pictures you know that have like you know come to me of the capacity of these drones these high resolution cameras and it's very interesting to think that they don't want people to know the capacity of these drones because then it would become even more clear that they can track the rebels quite efficiently so that's an interesting kind of thing about seeing i mean I, and again it's, it's luck you know with the un i put access to the Aturi conflict to show the military side i was very lucky to spend a week with the uruguayan unit and there was, I was supposed to spend one day there and then be flown back, but there was a problem with the helicopter. So I managed to have an extended period of time there. And once you're with the actual soldiers on the ground, forgotten about by the establishment, I will always find that like, you know, if you're engaging your friendly actual soldiers and the lower level officers are very happy to show you their work, to show you what they're doing. So I was out on patrols twice a day with the guys at night. You know, we had children come to the wire of the base and say, we think there's rebels over there. I got to go on like, you know, I was just waiting as they were all like gearing up, loading the machine guns onto the APCs and stuff. I was thinking, right, taking as many pictures as I can now, because there's no way they're going to let me. And then bang, you know, Lieutenant, who I was friends with, was like, yeah, come on, which one do you, which APC do you want to go in? And I was like, oh, fantastic. So again, it's luck, time on the ground and actually engaging with people when you're there. 
I think this might be a good moment actually, Hugh, to come back to your night vision series, because I, I, I'd love it if you could just describe, again, one or two of the photos from that. This is a, a moment where lots of creativity came out of necessity, and you use these night vision goggles to capture, in some ways, I think, your your sense that photographs struggle to show the whole truth of a conflict. So you somehow wanted to play around with that idea of the visible and the invisible. Is that right? Yeah, that is right. And then that was, you know, on the first day or two of that period being embedded with them, there was, I realized, you know, these, these pictures are awful. They show nothing. You know, the rebels will not come out in the day to engage with people. They will not mess with the UN peacekeepers. There was, you know, all you see, you go across the landscape and you see burnt out houses, you see empty villages, you can't see anything. You see a patrol moving, but quite frankly, that could be anywhere. There's no way of sort of getting a unique sense of this conflict. So I, yeah, I just hooked up my iPhones with some night vision goggles. Uh, but as again, it was just this way of just hinting that you have, you can see what's straight in front of you, but you'll never grasp the wider truth here. And also the, it was also a way of uh, hinting that, you know, UN peacekeeping troops are only ever going to be like, you know, a plaster on a wound. These guys coming from random countries across the globe, they do good work. Some of them do good work, um, but again, they're not people who will be able to understand the context. They will not be able to approach and solve these conflicts. It has to come from like the communities. I suppose that takes us straight back to the, the question of the, the impact that you hope your photography um, will have on, uh, on viewers. And we've already talked about how you develop your own style to produce photos that are different to what people might be used to, to seeing, just to make them stop and think about what they are seeing. What are your hopes for the impact of your photography? What kind of changes would you like to bring about? How would you like to prompt people to reconsider the ways in which they are viewing war, thinking about war? What kind of impact do you hope to have? Okay, well, with the Aturi conflict, firstly, I, I, I'm very happy that there does seem to be an appetite for more creative treatments because I am still absolutely encouraged and very proud of BBC News for publishing both my takes on the conflict, the military and the civilian, in the period of like two, three months together. You know, no one else is giving the conflict that kind of time. And also, I think that's in terms of thinking about change and stuff. I think you're only going to end up sort of like a Lewis Carroll-esque figure kind of waiting for direct physical it's about awareness you know in congo for instance if the uk government goes ahead with slashing budgets that go to development causes that go to these kind of programs in these places then people actually will lose their lives and it's a way of showing these communities here showing what's actually happening around the world and then i have to hope that people working in fields you know who have the capacity to actually make things happen to lobby for change to you know, do whatever it may be, we'll see images like this and they'll start to engage. It'll inspire people. You know, I think in terms of like a, an NGO project as well, like for Save the Children, if you think if you were a very, you know, cold thinker, you know, what's the point of hiring a photographer to take these pictures, you know, when you could just have someone take phone pictures from the scene to show you exactly what's happening. Well, the result is that people care. People look at an artistic engagement and they are now aware of something that's happened. I'm really struck by, well, the, the very varied style of your photography, but the way in which it really does succeed in doing what you're hoping, which is make people stop and think and question. So uh, the Save the Children portraits of children, for me, they were very, you know, very inspiring, but in some ways very healing. I, I loved the way in which you were somehow managing to put the beauty of the Congolese landscape back into the picture um, of this 
story of conflict and soften these images of children. So yes, I think that your photography absolutely does do exactly what you're hoping it will. My husband was actually looking over my shoulders. I looked at your Instagram page a couple of days ago. Initially, I had one picture up, which is just this landscape with incredible clouds. It's a very well set up landscape with a tree on one side, incredible cloud formations. And then there is a single soldier in the distance. Mm. And he thought for, for a second that I was looking at um, an oil painting. Yeah, that's that picture is um, that's in Benny. That's just on these Congolese army positions that sort of are on these hills that pretty much keep the town of Benny safe. So everything down below that soldier is uh, is called the Triangle of Death. It's it's like uh, there's huge protests at the moment in Congo because people like people are unhappy with the UN failing to keep them safe in that area. I, I do look for these moments of like you know sort of serenity as well. What I find so fascinating about your photos here's also something that's come out of the discussion today is that you can't really separate neatly as is sometimes done art from culture, politics, ethics, all of it comes together. I mean, you, by producing the photos you produce in your style, you achieve concrete social, cultural and, and, and political goals in a way. So there is no, there's no separating these two things. Art is our way into um, making th making people think about these these important bigger issues and actually bringing about change. Yeah, I hope so. I also just in again in terms of how lucky I am to have been able to pursue this work and be like able to pursue it because it, it, it I can't see any separation between like my projects and news stories and work I do for NGOs. I just see it as like my practice as well which is essential because that means I can approach assignments and stuff that people might only be treating as a cash cow as a way of like building, you know, I never, I, I, I never like taking jobs where I can't also be trying to add something more to the brief, some, you know, increasing what the outputs are. I'm absolutely incredibly lucky to be able to do this. Um, and it's most, my work is mostly only possible because I can work for NGOs and occasionally the UN uh, because The cost of doing news work is so high. People don't, you know, consider this. I, I did a story on like the origins of pandemics, you know, so I did a story about animal trafficking and like where Ebola came from in the rainforest here um, and how, you know, there's exotic animals being trafficked over to Asia from China. And, you know, to do something like that, even if it's just for a couple of weeks in the jungle, you know, you're needing four by fours, you're needing, you know, bush flights to the middle of nowhere. It's like the logistics and the expense of actually creating these stories are huge. So I'm absolutely incredibly fortunate to be able to do it. In terms of news stories as well, I'm also finding that's really harder to pursue. Like uh, the last two big editorial stories I've done about pandemics and viruses and also about um, snake bites, um, I've only been able to do because the Pulitzer Center gives a grant for that, which is a system where you know, an outlet will say, yes, we love this story, but we can't pay you for it. So you can apply for grants, you know, for production funding. So that's pretty much also another avenue that has created out of necessity as well. The external bodies who believe in the work will fund it. And then the outlets just using their audience will facilitate it and pay very little, which is a strange system, but it's what we have. 
strange system and it just reinforces the sense that this photography which is so important is built on somewhat fragile foundations Hugh you're about to head off on assignment so maybe that's a good opportunity to ask you about your future plans and also if you've maybe got any plans for exhibitions coming up future projects at the moment I'm applying for lots more funding to keep going back to Benny and base myself there for longer to cover the uh, conflict there Right now, I'm just about to go to uh, Tanganyika province for two weeks with the charity Concern Worldwide to work on some images for them, uh, which I'm really looking forward to because it's just they only work in one community in Congo. So it's this idea that we'll just be spending time in one place looking at, you know, the, the people there. So I'm hoping we'll get some really cool stories. Um, at the moment, it was well, I mean, in terms of the link, I'm really looking to go to Mozambique as well. I mean, trying to sort of communicate with a couple of people about that because if you look in the north of Mozambique you also have uh Islamic State militants creating mass displacements so there's uh I'm trying to get there we're just waiting for a visa for a certain uh client uh but that may not be possible but these are things I'm looking at I'm really the Islamist militancy in Africa at the moment is really interesting me so ways of like you know looking at the communities experiencing that and what the truth might actually be there is super interesting. Hugh, oh, that's been absolutely fascinating. And uh, I would like to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about uh, your incredible photography, the work you're doing. Uh, we've learned a lot about representations of conflict from this discussion and uh, about some of the cliches as well and habits that Rolling News promotes, but also about the challenges that inspire photojournalists like you, um, the, the material conditions for production and all of these mechanics that come together and that produce the kind of photos that you take and that you create. And uh, as we mentioned earlier, you can see some of Hugh's photographs on his Instagram site, also on his website. And uh, there will be some photographs featured also on the Visualizing Wall website uh, on our blog. Yes, thank you so much, Hugh, for sparing the time. And thank you, listeners, for joining us again. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation with Hugh Kinsella Cunningham as much as we have. Do keep tuning in to the Visualizing War podcast for more conversation about representations of war and what impact they can have. Next time, we'll be looking at some war reporting of a very different sort. We'll be time traveling from the 21st century back into the ancient world to look at how the story of a Roman era conflict was engraved onto a huge victory monument, Trajan's Column, which still stands today in Rome. Our guest will be our very own St Andrew's colleague, Dr John Coulston, an expert on Roman warfare, and he'll be talking about the mix of history, myth and propaganda that we can see on the column and what it reveals about Roman habits of visualising war. So we hope you'll join us for that next week. And if you'd like to support our project, please share and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or any other platform that you use so you don't miss an episode. And please do leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts because that really helps people find the show. And if you would like to join the conversation further, you can follow us on social media. Just search for Visualizing War or get in touch directly with us by emailing viswar at standrews.ac.uk. Our theme music was composed by Jonathan Young. The show was mixed by Sophia Gertin. Thank you for listening.